Well, if you've uh, been to Lettered Streets before, you'll know that this is a little bit weird having the communion table down here on the floor, let alone preaching from behind it. And uh, the reason that we're doing that this evening is kind of make a point that the, the text that I'm preaching out of is actually uh, one of the accounts of the Lord's Supper, of Jesus' Last Supper with His disciples before He was crucified. As we approach Easter, each week it's closer, we are uh, in the midst of the passion narratives in Matthew. The four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all have detailed descriptions of the passion narrative. In fact, uh, most of them heavily emphasize this part of Jesus' story. All four Gospels include some form of this plot line. Jesus predicts his death along the way. The religious leaders then plot his death. He is loved and appreciated by a woman who anoints him. He is betrayed by one of his own, and he hosts a meal with his disciples. There's much more than that, of course, but tonight we're focusing on the meal that Jesus hosts for his disciples. So, I'm going to ask you to stand one more time. It'll keep you awake anyway. And uh, we're going to read Matthew 26, verses 26 through 29. While they were eating, Jesus took some bread, and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. Lord, thank you for this word that in some ways is familiar, and I pray it wouldn't be too familiar. I pray, Lord, that your... Um, your message that you have for us, that your, your saving power, that the good news in this passage would grip us afresh in a way we don't even expect. Thank you for this good word. Thank you for this table. Amen. You may be seated. So we've come here to this account of what has become known as the Last Supper. And what is it worth to make of this story, these three verses in Matthew's Gospel? You know, on the one hand, it's, it's history, right? It's, if you love someone, you like to know their history. When I put the kids to bed each, each night or for a nap, they always want to know, Dad, tell me a story about when you were a little kid. They just like to hear the same stories. I don't know, they're pretty boring, actually. But um, one of the things that is cool about this is it, tell us, it tells us how the last hours and days of Jesus' life were spent. And the more you love him, the more you appreciate that we have these records. So there's history. But as we look deeper, we might have questions about this text. What is he talking about? Eating his body and drinking his blood. Is this some kind of ritual of cannibalism? And if so, what the heck are my kids learning right now in children's worship? Don't worry. They're, I think they're talking about Ten Commandments today or something. So don't, don't worry about that one. Or we could look at this as Christians in the 21st century and say, Oh, I know what this text is talking about. It's about communion. It's about what we do at this table. And I know it says weird stuff, but really it's all spiritual talk for just take a little piece of bread, dip it in a little wine, and go sit down. Okay. If that is what you think about that text and about this table, then I have failed you miserably. And if I have failed you in that regard... Let this message atone for my folly. Now, with each passing month and each passing year, 
of following Jesus, I am more and more convinced of my absolute desperate need for Him. I cannot do this life, I cannot do the things He's asking me without His help. I absolutely need Him. The more I work with people, no matter what their background, no matter what their age, no matter what their station in life, the more I realize what we need as people more and more is, is Jesus, of His life pumping through our veins, of His Spirit filling us up. We need what Ephesians 3 talks about when it says that Christ would take up residence in us and help us to live the life He calls us to live. I believe that these three verses we're looking at tonight show us a way into deeper intimacy with Jesus, into more power for living. And I would suggest that if, if you're taken with John chapter 15 and that image of abiding in Jesus where it says, you know, you need to, uh, Jesus is the vine and we are the branches and we can do nothing of lasting value unless we abide in Jesus. And you might be thinking, what does it mean to abide in Jesus? Let me suggest that what we do at the table is one of the primary ways we can abide in Jesus. Jim, would you mind shutting that door, please? Thanks. Feeling the draft on my legs here. Before we get to this table, though, we have to admit that we are pretty far from grasping the significance of this meal. I recently read a story about the Lykov family from Russia. In the 1930s, Soviet Russia was cleansing itself of Christians, especially Orthodox Christians. In 1936, Karp Lykov, yes, his name is Karp, but with the K, so not like a fish. Karp Lykov's brother was shot while gardening right next to him in the head for being a Christian. So Karp Lykov took his wife his son of nine years old and his daughter of two years old and ran deeper and deeper into the Siberian wilderness, the largest singular forest on the face of the earth. They lived there, going deeper and deeper into this forest for 40 years, surviving even the harsh Siberian conditions. Along the way, while they're out there in the wilderness, they had two more children, two daughters. Then, in 1978, Four Soviet geologists were flying looking for mineral reserves. They noticed something strange. A, a, a clearing is 6,000 feet up in the edge of a mountain. They put the copter down 10 miles away, went in by foot, and found a makeshift hut. They said there was one window the size of the backpack pocket on one of the geologists. And there they found the Lykov family. The two daughters who were born in the wilderness had never seen other human beings besides their own family members. They spoke in some kind of Russian-slash-guttural grunts uh, that the ge geologists couldn't understand. No one in this family knew that World War II had happened, let alone the Korean War or Vietnam. They had no idea about the Holocaust, had never heard of an, an atomic bomb. They had never seen a helicopter before. They didn't know that a man had stepped foot on the moon. They had no concept of television. They didn't know about the Beatles or the British invasion. Not many of the Soviets probably did either. It was all hidden from them. The point being, when they returned to civilization, they had no context for their world. They saw things that were new to them, but they had no idea how they actually worked or what they were necessarily for. So in essence, the Lykov family, upon returning to civilization, were like aliens from a foreign land. Now, if an alien were to come to the United States 
say, on Halloween night. They might say, why is it that your offspring dressed up, dress up as scary creatures and go begging from door to door, getting high-calorie foods with no nutritious value? Well, I don't know. We, we, just, we just do it, right? Like, we're trying to explain to aliens why we do the things we do. Or if they came to my house for our annual 4th of July barbecue, you know, why do you guys get together and cook flesh on this fire? Well, it's, it's really, it tastes really good. And, uh, and it's because it, well, it, it's celebrating our country's independence from another country. Okay, well then, why do, you, why do you buy products made in a country across the ocean, largely sold by a people who your country oppressed and put on reservations, that are overpriced, and then you light them on fire and blow them up? I'd be like, I don't know, my wife asks me that every year, I have no good answer for you. <laughs> Although I would quote this, I found this, this baby right here, this is by John Adams, you know, one of our nation's founders. The day will be most memorable, speaking of 4th of July. I'm apt to believe that it will be celebrated by succeeding generations as the great anniversary festival. It ought to be solemnized by pomp and parade, and this is my favorite part, by bonfires and fireworks. I'm missing that whole bonfire piece on my 4th of July party. We need that. From one end of the continent to the other, from this time forward forevermore. Thank you, John Adams. That's my reason. Here's my point. Like the Lykoff family in Siberia, or the alien visiting uh, a people with strange customs in a foreign land, we are actually alien visitors peeking into this text of the Lord's Last Supper. We're 21st century Gentile people peering into a 1st century Jewish setting. So, we need to ask the question, what are we missing? What's the context that we're missing here? And the simple answer is story. We're missing the story. We're missing the story of Israel. Since the beginning of uh, looking in Matthew's Gospel, since we started in January, I've tried to point out how Jesus' words and deeds are not just random. He's not just making stuff up as he goes along. He's not trying to do something brand new. Jesus is anything but an alien visitor who comes tinkering with the way the world works. Quite the opposite. All we have seen thus far shows us that Jesus is coming not only to the people of Israel, but from out of the people of Israel. He's deeply connected to their story, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. Jesus is connecting uh, to a people and coming out of a people whose biggest story is the Exodus. Right? So for example, God chose Moses to lead the people out of Egypt. That was the Exodus. And he leads them through the waters of the Red Sea. Maybe you remember that story where he parts the waters. And Jesus comes in the waters of baptism, much like Moses. Now this is going to be a little quiz. For if, if you are, are fairly new at Letter Streets, don't feel on the spot. You don't have to answer any of this. But for those of you who are partners who have been around a while, I, I want to hear some voices, right? So Moses takes the people out of Egypt on the Exodus for 40 years in the wilderness. Jesus goes into the wilderness for how many days? 40 days, okay. Moses went up to a mountain and received the law. What does Jesus do in Matthew 5? 
He goes on the mountain. Sermon on the Mount. Yes. Jesus goes up on a mountain and begins to expound upon that law and speaking as not as one who just receives it, but as one who has authority to proclaim the law, to actually get to the ethic and the heart behind that law. The people were amazed. When Moses brought the Israelites out of captivity, he convinces Pharaoh to let them go by doing ten mighty deeds. When Jesus comes down from the mountain after the Sermon on the Mount into the valley, what does he do? in Matthew's gospel, ten mighty deeds. So far, we have seen, Matthew's trying to make this point that Jesus is leading the people, perhaps the world, we'll get there, into a new exodus. Now, think about the passage that Nicole just read from Exodus 12. Exodus 13 begins the narrative of the exodus of how God delivers his people from captivity in Egypt. But before we get to chapter 13, we have chapter 12, which gives us the Passover. God basically, he's going to deliver the people, but before he does that, he wants to initiate a ritual to help them remember for all time his goodness and his salvation. So before he even delivers them, he says, here's what I'm going to do. Here's how I want you to remember. And he gives them the Passover. Now check this out. Before Jesus completes the new exodus, going to the cross for the forgiveness of the sins, basically the new exodus, releasing us from captivity to sin and death, before he does that, he gives us a ritual. A new kind of supper. The last supper. God gave the Israelites the Passover meal as a way of remembering his salvation. Of course, there are many elements to the meal, but the staple pieces were the flat bread or the matzah, unleavened bread, made without yeast. Why? Because the people had to leave, they had to be ready to go when God said the word. They didn't have time to let the bread rise, so they had unleavened bread that they could pack with them quickly. There was the Passover lamb, central to the meal. The angel of death was sent upon the Egyptians, but would pass over the Jews' houses who had sprinkled the blood over the lintel and over the doorposts of their homes. And there were the bitter herbs, or maror. They were eaten to remind them of how the Egyptians made their lives uh, bitter in slavery. Throughout the meal, there would be four cups of wine. I, I like this meal. There's not only a little bit of wine, four cups of wine, each with a separate meaning. I will bring out. I will deliver. I will redeem. I will take. The senior uh, male of the household would preside over this Passover meal. They would play the host. In this case... In this dinner, in Matthew 26 through 29, Jesus is the leader. He would be in charge of officiating the Passover meal. Now, the disciples may have thought things were a little bit off. Jesus was preparing and performing the Passover meal or the Seder most likely a day early. Furthermore, he didn't have a lamb that we know of. It's not mentioned in any of the texts. But then again, they'd been hanging around Jesus for about three years. He did things a little differently, didn't he? He did things weird, and plus, the authorities were kind of out for him, so maybe he was just switching things up to throw them off. So, whatever, the disciples go along with it. The meal starts traditionally, as far as we know. Jesus probably would have started by saying, Why is tonight different than any other night? That's what you always say during the Seder. The youngest, maybe John himself, would ask, On all other nights, we eat either leavened bread or unleavened bread. 
Why on this night do we only eat unleavened bread? On all other nights, we need not dip our herbs even once. Why on this night do we dip our bitter herbs twice? On all other nights, we eat either sitting or reclining. But why on this night do we all eat reclining? Everything was going according to plan. This is basically how the disciples probably would have heard things since they were little boys growing up, observing the Passover each year. But then... Things got weird. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it, which was all normal, until he said this, Take, eat, this is my body. What? That's not how the Seder goes. Did Jesus forget the words? Too much wine? But before things get better, they get weirder. Jesus then took a cup of wine, and after blessing it, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, okay, for this is the blood of the new covenant. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Not even the mainstream Romans or Greeks were into cannibalism. And drink blood, no Jew worth their salt would conceive of drinking blood, let alone human blood. What on earth was Jesus doing? Why was he changing this ritual that God himself gave to the people? What is going on? Well, of course, the disciples didn't understand, they couldn't understand until Friday. When the beloved man that they were eating this strange version of the Passover with would hang from a cross... The scripture tells us that as soon as Jesus gave up his spirit, the temple, the veil in the temple that separated God's presence from the people was torn in two. And it was torn from the top to the bottom as if God himself were making the way for us to approach him. It was after Jesus died and rose that the disciples would remember John the Baptist's words when they first saw Jesus. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's why there was no lamb in this version of the Passover meal. They finally understood Jesus was reinterpreting the Passover meal. He himself was becoming the Passover lamb, the once and for all the last sacrifice ever needed. And all this business about bread, the Seder Haggadah says, this is the bread of affliction which our forefathers ate in the land of Egypt. Let all those who are hungry come and eat with us. Let all those who are in need come and share our meal. It goes like this. This year we are here. Next year we may be in the land of Israel. This year we are still slaves. Next year we will all be set free. Jesus was making himself, his very body, the bread of affliction. He would suffer that we might be free. He said this himself, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. And the blood, the blood of Jesus, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Of course, the blood of the new covenant 
uh, just as God promised through Jeremiah the prophet. Listen to these words from the prophet Jeremiah. Chapter 31, starting in verse 31. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and on their heart I will write it. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. They will not teach each other, each man to his neighbor and each man to his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. The new covenant promised by God, Jesus saying, This is the blood of the new covenant. Jesus' sacrifice makes this possible shed for the sins of the world. All who come to trust in Jesus are baptized into his death and resurrection and into his new community. And the strange thing about uh, what Jesus did is that all this was weirdly happening in his person. The things that are supposed to happen when the kingdom comes in full on the day of judgment were somehow strangely happening just in Jesus. See, the prophets pointed to a time far in the future when God would come and be among his people. Evil will be judged once and for all. When all those who trust in Jesus will be vindicated and creation will be restored. We won't be having prayer times about cancer. We won't be sending people to Guatemala except to to visit with brothers and sisters. This is what the prophets are pointing to. One day, all of these things, death will cease. The dead will be raised to new life. But with Jesus, it was like, it was like this foretaste, this, this teaser trailer of a better movie coming out in the future. See, what Jesus was on earth, there the kingdom was. And no, evil isn't completely judged yet, but wherever Jesus was, he's casting out demons left and right. Evil doesn't stand a chance around him. And when Jesus encounters sickness and disease, he heals it with a touch or a word. And when Jesus is around those who are on the outside who feel like they don't matter, Jesus re-includes them into the community of God's people. Jesus was even resurrected from the dead. No one expected one person to be resurrected. It's always supposed to have been Everyone resurrected at once. Jesus is is a foretaste of what it's going to be like. But we're still waiting. We're still waiting. And that is what brings us week after week to this table. After Jesus rose from the dead on a Sunday, people began to worship him on Sunday. Eventually, they stopped gathering for the Jewish Sabbath on Saturday and gather for worship on Sunday. People like, didn't have the day off on Sunday, so if you have the day off, that's kind of a, a cool new thing. But people in the Roman Empire didn't have Sundays off, especially the slave class. They had to get to work. So they'd actually meet really early before work for worship on Sunday. And the main staples of that worship experience were two main things. The preaching of the word and the sacrament of the table. And people didn't have very much money or very much time 
So it wasn't like this huge meal that they all shared. It was the breaking of the bread, dipping in wine, have a good day at work, be salt and light wherever you are. I feel pretty fortunate that we get a, you know, a long time in the evening, we get to eat a meal afterwards because those early believers probably didn't have that luxury. It's very quick in the morning. There's four main images that described what our early uh, Christian brothers and sisters did at the table. The first is simple. It was known as the breaking of bread. It wasn't necessarily talking about a large meal, but sharing in the common life of Jesus with one another. In fact, Paul got really ticked off when some people weren't waiting for the rest of the church. Some people were eating before the others. This meal about is breaking one common piece of bread shows that we are all together in this. Which ties in with the second term, which is the sharing, or Greek koinonia, from which we get partnership or communion. Communion is a, uh, a helpful term, I think, because it speaks to our unity across age and gender and class and culture. Our communion is a sharing of Jesus who's at the center of our lives together. The third term is probably the most popular throughout the world. It's the Thanksgiving meal or the Eucharist. At the table, we give thanks for what Jesus has done week in and week out. And finally, the fourth name for what we do at the table is the Lord's Supper. We recognize that when we come to the table, Jesus is the great host. It's not up to the priest or to the people. Even though, Bethany, I appreciate you, you put the spread out today, you and I, congregation, we are not the host. The, this is the Lord's Supper, the Lord's table. That term reminds us that He is the host. It is He who, who takes and blesses and breaks and gives. And what does He call the disciples to do? Receive. In fact, in Matthew's text that we have tonight, He commands us as disciples to receive. That's it. So what's actually happening when we partake at this table? There are many t terms in theology that are thrown around. Uh, the Roman Catholic transubstantiation on the one hand uh, is heavily influenced by medieval philosophy. Basically, uh, where the outward appearance of a physical thing has a deeper spiritual reality somewhere else. And the, even though your senses don't uh, adjust to the fact that when you eat this bread and drink this wine, somehow, mysteriously, it becomes the actual flesh and blood of Jesus. Okay? That would be one extreme. The other, memorialism, which was heavenly influenced by rationalist thinking. And it maintains that the bread and the drink are just stuffed there to jog our memory of something that Jesus did a long time ago. But I think both of those extremes neglect the scriptural account, which is much more mysterious and difficult to nail down. I like what Dale Bruner, uh, commentator, has to say about this. He says, this is my body and my blood is not made to be interpreted cannibalistically. You know, Jesus also said things like, I am the vine, or I am the gate. Uh, we don't think that Jesus is a gate, right? Or, or, or a plant. Uh, same way, we don't think that he is actually like here every time in his physical flesh and blood. But Jesus gives his body mysteriously or sacramentally. The church has always believed that. That is, he gives his body to us in bread and wine in a real, but not carnal way. You know, carnal means meat in the flesh. 
So when he, he's here in a real way, but not in a carnal way. How can this be, asks Bruner. And he answers himself, Jesus is good at miracles. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> so the point is, and never was actually until the last probably couple hundred years, how do we scientifically explain, explain this bread and wine thing to an alien visitor? Now that we know the story of the Exodus, by the way, and the original context behind this, that's not the point anyway. No one was asking those types of questions. What this is about is the promise of God's future. All of those hopes that we are placing our trust in, the recreation of our planet, resurrection from the dead, the judgment of evil, of putting things right. All of that hope that is somewhere in the future could be this instant, could be in a thousand years, we don't know. At the table, it comes rushing backwards and it's here. At the same time, Jesus, 2,000 years ago, died on a cross for you and me. And somehow, that rushes from the past back into this table. So at this table, it is believed that Jesus is somehow all here, all present, and we experience that. In the sacrament. For all of our desire to be close with Jesus, to know Him, to experience His life-giving power running through us, to have our thirst, our hunger quenched and satisfied. For all the guilt and the shame that we bear, we come to the table forgiven by Jesus, met by Jesus, touched by Jesus. For all of our fear of death, we come to the table and are reminded of the taste of new life. If I can communicate anything, what Jesus has done for us in giving us this meal is more than a reminder. It's meant to be an encounter with the living and reigning Jesus himself. You know, throughout the ages, there are tons of beautiful liturgies for approaching communion and how the church has done this. And uh, they're gorgeous. In fact, uh, I'd like to, to try some more of them in the, in the future and just get a taste of what the rest of the church does throughout the world. But these are the basic principles I think are fairly universal. You must be a disciple. Jesus commands his disciples to take up this meal. This is for people who have trusted Jesus. You must accept the call of Jesus to follow. And maybe you're doing that for the first time today. Wonderful. Wonderful. Come to the table. Whether you're following Jesus for the first time or you've been following him for many years, the church has always seen the value. Before we approach the table, we confess, we repent of our sins. Sometimes that's done through silent confession. Sometimes that's done through a group prayer together. And this evening, I want to invite us to both. So what we'll do first is, um, is we'll have a prayer of confession that Ian's going to put on the screen. And we can, let's just pray that together. Gracious God, our sins are too heavy to carry, too real to hide, and too deep to undo. Forgive what our lips tremble to name, what our hearts can no longer bear. And what has become for us a consuming fire of judgment. Set us free from a past that we cannot change. 
Open to us a future in which we can be changed. And grant us grace to know more and more in your likeness and image. Through Jesus Christ, the light of the world, amen. For those of you who, when you read a prayer like that, you're just struggling to say the words or to think about what it means. Maybe it doesn't touch your heart as much. So I want to give us an opportunity now of just silent confession uh, before the Lord. Jesus, I am thankful for your word that tells us that if we but confess our sins to you, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Lord, the cry of our hearts is not just to be forgiven, but to be remade. Lord, I pray as we approach this table and partake in your life afresh, that your recreative power would flow through us, that you would help to break the chains of bondage to sin and death that we so often um, cave to. Lord, I pray that you would set captives free this evening from the shackles of shame, from doubt, Thank you, Lord. Amen. Then, as we approach the table, across the annals of history and various ancient liturgies, there's always some type of words of institution, uh, a retelling of the story. And you know, oftentimes I use uh, the Apostle Paul's words of institution from 1 Corinthians 11. Uh, it's believed that the book of Corinthians was written even earlier than the gospel accounts and and what we have there is a is a I, I just love this as a history nut it's just an an example of what the early church actually did when they came to the table that Paul uh, taught them to recite what Jesus did but for tonight since we're in Matthew's gospel I want to use uh, his words for the words of institution so there they were and while they were eating Jesus took some bread and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And then he took the cup, he gave it to them. He said, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of this vine from now on until that day I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. And then there's the prayer of consecration. Various forms of this prayer exist. 
I try and switch it up from week to week. Uh, but one of the standbys is it, here in the Covenant Book of Worship. It, it is a prayer that basically asks Jesus to come be with us to uh, consecrate these sacraments. And this one goes like this. Holy Father, who sent the Holy Spirit to equip your Son, Jesus, for doing your will. Send that same Spirit upon us and upon these gifts of bread and wine, returned to you from your creation. Unworthy though we may be, may this same Spirit enable us to receive them for what Jesus said they were, his body and his blood for us. So receiving, we may be more equipped to endure testing as well as triumph in our service to you. Therefore, sustain us in faith, strengthen us to love, and season us with hope as we await the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus the Christ, who with you and the Holy Spirit ever lives and rules now as always. Amen.